Hello, welcome to the June JMP podcast. My name is Elizabeth Hyten, and in this double episode, we'll be in conversation with two of our authors with regards to their recently published research in the JMP. First up, we'll be talking to Professor Steve Vujic from Westmead Hospital in Sydney, Australia, who'll be talking to me about his research about prognostic biomarkers for ALS followed by a conversation with Dr. Helen Ling, who's a Senior Research Associate at UCL in London, who will be talking to me about her research with regards to Parkinson's disease without nigral degeneration. First up, we'll be discussing rate of disease progression, prognostic biomarker in ALS. This study was selected as our patient choice this month. I'm joined over the phone today by Professor Steve Vujic from the Department of Neurology at Westmead Hospital, Sydney. Thanks for joining me today, Steve. Uh, pleasure, Elizabeth. So can I start off by asking, why would you argue it was important to identify prognostic biomarkers, um, particularly in relation to illnesses such as motor neuron disease? Uh, well, thank you very much for inviting me to the podcast. Motor neuron disease is a heterogeneous disorder clinically uh, with a variable rate of disease progression, although the majority of patients progress rapidly and over a fairly quick period of time. The the importance of uh, prognostic biomarkers is uh, multifold. Firstly, it will give patients certainty as to how quickly they will progress and therefore they will uh, uh, that will enable institution of various management strategies and also uh, they will, it will enable patients to also uh, get their life in order, so to speak. But the other uh, very important reason is that uh, if we can tell how quickly a patient will progress, then it may have some bearing on future clinical trials. For example, if a patient progresses at a very fast rate versus a very slow rate in any future clinical trials, you would want to equalize arms of the trial so as to properly judge the effectiveness of any therapeutic uh, agent. And also along the clinical trials uh, uh, regime, it's very important to have a way of telling whether a certain therapeutic agent is working in motor neuron disease at an early stage in drug development. Uh, If you have a reliable prognostic biomarker that can be modified by your therapeutic drug, then you can be sure to proceed with that agent to, the, uh, to its full uh, course of development. But if it does modify a robust prognostic biomarker, then perhaps there is no reason in proceeding with a costly phase three trial. So prognostic biomarkers are quite important in motor neuron disease and would like to stress that perhaps this is the new frontier that is undiscovered in motor neuron disease. Your paper assesses the use of the ALS-FRS scale. Um, for listeners unfamiliar with the ALS-FRS, it's a functional rating scale uh, which monitors progression of disability in patients uh, with motor neuron disease uh, with lower scores indicative of worsening disability. Your paper specifically examines the use of um, the rate of disease progression instead of a total ALS-FRS score as a potential prognostic biomarker. Could you walk us through exactly what that means? What is the potential utility of the rate of disease progression? Well, the rate of disease progression uh, predicts how quickly a patient develops functional deficit. Taking one step back, the amyotrophic lateral sclerosis function rating scale, or the ALS-FRS, uh, was developed in the late 90s, and it's a 12-item scale that measures a different aspect of bodily function 
For example, uh, there, are, there are components that measure breathing, there are components that uh, measure bulbar throat function, there are compo- components that measure gross motor and fine motor function. Each of these is affected uh, in patients, and uh, what the ALSFRS enco- uh, encapsulates is how uh, much of the uh, of this deficit uh, is affecting the patient, and thereby this translates to a, a overall functional deficit. Now, what is important to know is how quickly these functional deficits develop. If they develop very slowly over a period of years, that uh, may occur in some atypical ALS or MND phenotypes, that is not as, say, severe as uh, in somebody who develops, develops it over a very rapid course over a period of months. The rate of disease progression encapsulates that by subtracting the total ALS FRS score at that visit from the maximal score, which is 48, where one has no deficits, and then dividing that by the symptom duration in terms of months. So that if you have a, a, a very high score, then what that means is that you've uh, attained your deficits very quickly. In, uh, in contrast, if you have a low score, it means that you've attained your deficits very slowly. So when you examine a patient for the first time in the clinic, uh, you can have a snapshot of how quickly they're progressing, and you can prognosticate based on that number what will happen in the future. This is what our data is alluding to. So, I mean, your study looked at a large Australian cohort of ALS patients, um, all of whom were clinically assessed every three to six months and then followed up until mm-hmm. death or census date, um, as I understand it from mm-hmm. the paper, uh, with your primary mm-hmm. endpoint being survival from initial visits. Of course, full details of the methods and the findings can be found in the paper itself. But I guess I wanted to ask you about the three statistically derived prognostic groups that emerge from the analysis. Could you, could you tell us a little bit more about those? Yes. Uh, conducting uh, quite sophisticated statistics uh, with our statistician, we uh, found three different prognostic subgroups. The first group was the one that we classified as the one that had the Slowest disease uh, progression and uh, with a score of less than 0.47, and they had the greatest survival. Next was the intermediate group from 0.47 to 1.11, which had an intermediate survival, and the fastest progressing group that is uh, greater than 1.11. Now, this group had the worst prognosis and the shortest survival. What is uh, quite interesting is that in a statistical and uh, may I say blinded fashion, we actually arrived at a very similar point to what some groups had, uh, had previously proposed as a consensus cutoff, that is 0.5 to 1 and greater than 1. So our calculations can are, are very predictive of what will happen to a patient uh, in the future, and we feel that these can be used both by clinicians to assist with prognostication, but also it can be used in a clinical trial setting and a clinical research setting to look at different uh, prognostic groups, how the medications uh, affect them, and also whether or not any future uh, modif- uh, 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 any future treatments can modify the rate of disease progression from, say, being very fast to being very uh, very slow, and whether that indeed translates to an improved survival of a specific medication. So it's a very simple. Uh, yet very powerful biomarker, we feel. You don't need any special equipment 
uh, all you need is the clinician and the patient, and it takes about five minutes to do in the clinic. So its beauty is in its simplicity, which I think is its real asset. Definitely. And it sounds like it's definitely got implications, um, utility in a research and, and a clinical setting as well. Uh, absolutely. I think it, it is a nice, clinical, simple tool that takes five minutes to do and uh, you can um, use it in a trial setting, in a clinical research setting for all sorts of purposes. It was great to have you join me today, Steve. Thank you very much for your time. It was my pleasure and thank you for asking me to do a podcast. Thank you. So that was Professor Steve Vujic from the Department of Neurology at Westmead Hospital, Sydney. I'm now joined over Skype by Dr. Helen Ling, a Senior Research Associate at UCL, the Institute of Neurology in London. Helen and I will be discussing her paper, Parkinson's disease without nigral degeneration, and whether it's a pathological correlate of scans without evidence of dopaminergic deficit, or SWED. Uh, This research paper was selected for the editor choice uh, for the June issue of the JNMP journal. So thank you very much for joining us today, Helen. Hello. Um, So I guess my first question is, you know, a context question really. What are the defining clinical and pathological features for Parkinson's disease? Well, to clinically diagnose Parkinson's disease, um, the clinician first needs to establish the clinical features of Parkinsonism and then to consider if the Parkinsonism is caused by Parkinson's disease or other causes. The clinical features of Parkinsonism is characterized by bradykinesia and at least one of the three other features, including rigidity, rest tremor, and postural instability. Bradykinesia is the core feature of Parkinsonism and requires the demonstration of slowness of movements as well as progressive reduction in speed and amplitude of repetitive movements on bedside examination. Now, the next step is to establish if the Parkinsonism is caused by Parkinson's disease. Um, To do that, one has to consider the presence of supportive clinical features and the absence of atypical features. For example, a clear response to dopamine replacement therapy such as levodopa and the loss of the sense of smell are supportive features of the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. On the other hand, abnormal eye movements and cerebellar abnormalities are atypical features that would be suggestive of an atypical Parkinsonian disorder as the cause rather than Parkinson's disease. And um, I I think you asked me about the pathological Mm. features of Parkinson's disease as well. Um, The key neuropathological features of Parkinson's disease are alpha-synuclein inclusions known as uh, Lewy bodies and Lewy neurites, and also the loss of dopaminergic containing pigmented neurons from the substantia nigra. And all all of these uh, features result in striatal dopamine deficiency. 
Okay, thank you. Um, I mean, to briefly summarise your paper and details of which can, of course, be found um, in the paper itself on the JNMP website, but you looked at five cases uh, which were considered to have clinically defined Parkinson's uh, throughout the entirety of their illness. However, crucially, when they went to post-mortem, so when they underwent macro and microscopic examination, um, none of the cases met the criteria for pathological diagnosis of Parkinson's disease or other Parkinsonian syndromes. Could you expand on the importance of that sort of discrepancy and and what are the implications when discrepancies between, say, the clinical features perhaps and and pathology are identified? Yeah, sure. Uh, The five cases in this series had presenting features and a clinical course highly suggestive of Parkinson's disease. Four had asymmetrical rest tremor, which were responsive to levodopa treatment. Two had documented bradykinesia. And four had progressive progression of the clinical features associated with gait and balance difficulties in the advanced stage of disease. And all five cases had received a clinical diagnosis of Parkinson's disease and were closely followed up throughout the disease caused by neurologists. Postmortem studies, um, other postmortem studies have shown that the diagnostic accuracy of Parkinson's disease is actually more than 90%, so pretty good. And as for the remaining 10% of misdiagnosed cases, they all had a confirmed neuropathological explanation. Therefore, it was intriguing that none of the five cases in this series had a neuropathological explanation for their clinical features in postmortem. Specifically, uh, there was no Lewy body pathology or any significant cell loss in the substantia nigra. We also did not find any histological evidence of other neurodegenerative Parkinsonian syndromes or vascular Parkinsonism. Now, this discrepancy in the clinical and the pathological findings implies that these five cases must represent an entity which has not been previously described in clinical pathological studies and that the pathophysiological explanations of their clinical features most likely do not fall within the established Parkinsonian entities. So would you be able to provide possible alternative explanations for those five cases? Is that something you and the fellow authors were able to to sort of hypothesize on? Yeah. um, In order to look for possible alternative pathophysiological explanations of the clinical features for these cases, Uh, we carried out quantitative assessment of the density of tyroxine hydroxylase in the striatum and substantia nigra. Um, We did this experiment in these five cases and compared the finding with another five cases with Parkinson's disease and five other healthy normal control cases. Now, um, just to give you a background, tyroxine hydroxylase immunohistochemistry is often used as a marker of dopaminergic neurons in the brain tissue. From our experiments, we found that in the striatum, there was a reduction in the tyroxine hydroxylase density in our five cases when compared with normal control cases. 
and that the density was reduced to a similar degree as the cases with Parkinson's disease, suggesting that uh, there must be striatal dopamine deficiency as the same degree as Parkinson's disease. And it is possible that a mild loss or dysfunction of the dopaminergic terminals in the striatum might have caused this dopaminergic deficiency. On the other hand, the density of the tyroxine hydroxylase in the substantial nigra in our five cases were normal and were the same as control. And um, when compared to Parkinson's disease controls, is significantly higher, which is within the normal limit. Do these cases, um, we touched on it a little bit just, just then and a bit before, but do, do they highlight the complexity of, of neurological diagnosis? Um, is, it, is, it, is it as easy, I suppose, um, as saying these patients, these, these five cases were misdiagnosed during life? Mm. It, it sounds like it's quite a complex picture. There have been reports of cases with clinical Parkinson's disease, but absence of pathological explanation similar to these cases. However, the clinical features of those reported cases would have, um, in retrospect, fitted the diagnosis of other known non-neurodegenerative tremor syndromes, such as essential tremor or dystonic tremor. In contrast, the cases in this series had cardinal motor features of Parkinson's disease and had been followed by neurologists for prolonged periods of time. It is therefore unlikely that inaccuracy in the clinical diagnosis was the reason for our findings. And these cases um, emphasize the need to regularly review the diagnosis in cases of suspected Parkinson's disease. And also, um, I think our series also highlights the need for precision in neurological examination particularly to establish the presence of bradykinesia, which I mentioned earlier, which requires the observation of progressive decrement and fatigue during uh, repetitive finger tapping movements on the bedside. With, with your um, current findings, and it's mentioned in the title itself of the paper, um, how far can you hypothesize or, or how far did you hypothesize that these five cases um, are the pathological correlates of patients who during life may undergo a SPECT scan um, and demonstrate no evidence of dopaminergic deficits, um, e.g. Uh, Swede patients, Swede patients? Um, just to orientate the audience, I would like to give you a background on SWAT, um, standing for scans without evidence of dopaminergic deficit. Just to um, uh, just to orientate you, um, dopamine transporter back scan is commonly referred as that scan, and it provides a marker for dopamine terminal innervation, which projects from the substantia nigra to the striatum in the brain. In trials for early Parkinson's disease, such as uh, the well-known CALM PD, RealPAT, and L-DOPA studies, up to 15% of patients had normal DAT scan, indicating normal presynaptic nigrostriatal dopaminergic system. Now, the radiological acronym of SWAT was used to describe these patients. 
and there's still ongoing debates regarding the true diagnosis. Repeats that scans in these cases often remain normal, with only 8 to 13% of cases eventually converted to have an abnormal scan up to five years later. Therefore, most neurologists now consider that these patients do not have Parkinson's disease. And most importantly, the pathological findings in SWAT had not been published until this uh, series. Now, in this series, given the lack of cell loss in the substantial nigra and striatum on histological examination, the result of the death scan in these five cases, if they had been done, would most likely have been reported as normal on visual assessment. But semi-quantitative assessments might have revealed subtle reduction in tracer uptake in the striatum. That's our speculation. Um, if you had to summarise a take-home message from your cases, uh, what would it be? The five cases in this series probably represent a subgroup of sweat cases. And it may be reasonable to assume that sweat is an entity of diagnostic exclusion with several distinct causes. And we conclu- conclude from our findings that striatal dopamine deficiency, as identified in our cases, may be one of the underlying pathophysiological mechanisms of sweat. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Helen. That was, that was really interesting. Thank you for your time. You're most welcome. Thank you, Elizabeth. So so that was Dr. Helen Ling from UCL Institute of Neurology. Uh, Both the papers discussed on today's podcast are available for free download on jnmp.bmj.com. So on behalf of the JNMP, thank you for joining us and we look forward to tuning in with you all next time. (music) 